You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, thebody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. Oliver, welcome to This Positive Life. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Can you start by describing a little bit how you found out you were HIV positive? During the, the, the middle 80s, when they started talking about uh, GRID, I, I thought, well, maybe I should just go and get a physical. And that is when I found out that I was HIV positive, or had GRID, as, as they called it in that moment. They were just getting the change over to AIDS and, and HIV. And that was in 1986, then, yes. so early days. How old early were you days. then? I was 24, 23. What was the first thing that you thought when you heard that you were HIV positive or had GRID? Actually, I was quite frightened because this was a day when people were just dying, you know, left and right. And I had some friends that were quite ill, so I just assumed, oh, man, you know, I guess I will be next. And then my brother actually took a test, too, because we kind of went together, and he was tested positive also. So um, it was just a a very uh, frightening time, I think, for both of us. And how old was your brother at the time that he tested? Four years younger than me, so it was 1920. You know, we were both just quite frightened. And, and we were just happy that we had each other to talk to because this was a time when no one knew anything about this disease. Did you have a sense that you were at risk? Did that have anything to do with the reason why you got tested? Uh, to a certain extent, because it was at the same time, I you know, think that uh, ACT UP had just started and was fairly visible. And it was a, one of the national magazines had come out and I think they kind of frightened us because they were really just talking about, you know, gay men or Haitians were at risk. And we just thought, oh, well, maybe we should just take a test just to sort of see what that's about. Are you gay or is your brother gay? I would say that we're both bisexual or sexual. (laughs) You know, there's different labels. We didn't really grow up with them. So it's like (laughs) we just sort of come to try to work with them a little bit. But I, I would say that we were both probably bisexual. We were brothers, but we were also good friends, so we sort of knew the crowds we were both running around with. And it was sort of a whole crowd thing, you know, like, let's all go get a physical and see if we're okay, since we did have some friends that were ill, and we still didn't know what that was about at that time. About how long did that feeling of fear last? For me, it really lasted probably a decade, because after I found out that I I had this disease, it was then a matter of, well, what do we do with it? or not do with it. In, in our case, it was not do with it because we um, just had some misgivings about medication at that time. It just seemed everything was so experimental, you know, and, and we weren't getting ill, so we just decided not to do anything. But not doing anything, you know, gave me a little bit of a great cause to contemplate, you know, my I guess my own immortality. So it wasn't until... You know, we started coming out with protease inhibitors, and we started talking about HIV and then AIDS and, the, you know, the, the quote-unquote differences of the two that I started to feel more comfortable. More people talking about it and more organizations doing, you know, working in the field and the government participating in it and the CDC and, you know, all of our health institutions, it just gave me a, a different level of comfort around 1994, 95. Still some fear, but not as fearful. Looking back, what do you think put you at risk at the time? I would say for myself, it was just unprotected sexual intercourse. And it it may have been with somebody who was an intravenous drug user, and I just didn't know it. 
So you don't know who specifically you got HIV from? No, that, that I don't know. What was the first thing you did that helped you come to terms with your diagnosis? When I started to be not as fearful was when I decided that I would uh, go on uh, the antiviral medications. Can you remember what your first regimen was? Oh, yeah. Actually, it's, it's still the same regimen as, as it was in the beginning. It hasn't changed. So it's Kaletra, Viadex, Variad. And I guess what had happened for me was I actually had went for a whole decade without being sick on any level, without having any issues outside of the fact that my T-cell count was low. Uh, outside of that, I didn't have any other issues. But then I was hospitalized because I got TCP. Is that what it's called? Yes. And then that's when I had a consultation with the doctor, my doctor at the time, and we just, you know, discussed the new medications that were different than ACT and stuff. So that's when I said, well, I will start with these. As I started with them, my system just just started to rebound itself. So it took about two years, up to about 1998, until I was feeling fit again is a, is a good word for that. But I've been on the same regimen since then, and it hasn't uh, changed much. I mean, the regimen hasn't changed at all, but my health is, has been fairly stable. The only side effect that I've had is, is a slight case of neuropathy, and then on occasion I, I do have some uncontrollable diarrhea, but it's not a daily occurrence, so I do take uh, another pill for that, uh, low, low paramide, which seems to help that out when it's extremely active. But it's, I would say maybe once a month there will go through a couple days where it's rough. How did you find your HIV specialist, the doctor that you're with now, or different doctors that you've had before? Well, I, I do have a different doctor, and as a matter of fact, I have a, a brand-new doctor who I haven't even met yet. I, I will get to meet this person in two weeks in my next appointment. But my doctor was with the, uh, the New York Presbyterian University Hospital of Columbia and Cornell, the Rogers Clinic for Special Studies. It was sort of neat, neat because, I, you know, being, living in Manhattan, I had the opportunity to go and visit a couple of uh, different centers in the middle 90s, and I just happened to like this one, and it was fairly new, so it wasn't as crowded. And so I, I went in and I registered, and they assigned the doctor to me, and she was my doctor for literally uh, seven years until she uh, moved from that space. Not that much turnover, so that's been pretty good. What was your relationship like with the past two doctors that you had? What kind of relationship did you have? Mine was, was pretty good because of the training that I've had for my own self on, on learning what to ask and being involved in, in, in my own care and being my own advocate. You know, so I, I, I kind of feel that I've gotten pretty good, but good care because I've been engaged in it. I wanted to go back to talking about your family and relationships. You went to get tested with your brother, and you both tested positive. That's really, I mean, that's huge. So he was the first person that knew about your diagnosis. Yes, yes. We were the first persons who knew about each other's diagnosis, yes. Who were the next people that you told? The next person that I told was probably one of my best friends. And how did you start that conversation? Oh, I, well, it's because it was a best friend. I just told him. <laughs> I mean, it was one of my friends from, from growing up. We went to kindergarten through junior high, high school. I mean, this was really a good friend. There were no real secrets between us, so I just told him and his, him and his wife, actually, you know, that we were just really good friends. And then, you know, I have a small, had a small circle of friends, so, you know, 
honesty's always just been something we we've always been part of. So I would say friends were first. Family was a little different, though. My brother and I decided not to share it with anyone in our family until until actually you know, a good, good maybe six, seven years later. You know, he and I knew, and well, I have a fairly large family, so I have we have one more, one younger brother who was younger than the two of us, and he knew. So the three of us knew, and then we shared it with everybody uh, about maybe six, probably around 1991, 92. How did your younger brother react, the one who wasn't positive and who knew early on? Well, I think because we were all we were all fairly close in age, uh, with a six-year span between us. So we kind of grew up together, and we grew up in a rural part of Pennsylvania, so it wasn't like we had a lot of friends around us. So as brothers, we were just pretty uh, open with each other, and our older brothers didn't grow up with us. They were old, they were much older than us, so they were, they were just out of the house as we were growing up. So the three of us were fairly close, and so we just talked about a lot of stuff. So we just told him, and he just was, like, involved in that, <laughs> involved in the knowing. We didn't tell our parents, <laughs> and we didn't tell anyone else. And I think it was because we were just struggling with how will we have this conversation, because what anyone saw on the news was people dying. Since neither one of us were actually having any issues at the moment, I think we just didn't want to put them through the, through the thought that we were going to be dead in a week. Because this was in the time when people were really you know, just dropping off so quickly. So We have made the pact that if neither one of us were, were showing outward signs or, or getting quite ill quickly, then we wouldn't say anything until that occurred. So what was it that inspired you to tell them the six or seven years oh, I think we knew we had more information on the disease uh, of HIV and AIDS, and it was just an easier conversation to have at that point because we were much more secure in, in, in our own knowledge base. So we had decided that we were going to do it in, on, a, on a Saturday, and I think we did it the Sunday after the football game. So after the football game, you didn't sort of sit them down and say, Mom, Dad, we have something to tell you. You just oh, told no, them. Oh, we all do well. <laughs> Maybe a TV they do things like that, but not, us, not our family. Not like, oh, well, here, here, I got something you, you, you need to know. You know, this is happening. And, and I think that that's, I don't, I don't know, that, that's just the way our family kind of operates. We just sort of <laughs> just put it out there and say, oh, okay. <laughs> pretty calm. <laughs> Sounds like they're all very communicative. Well, how did they react? Uh, they were a little a little frightened, is a good word, because, I, you know, I just remember my dad's immediate action was, oh, my goodness. Basically, I, I remember saying, well, what are we supposed to do as, as what are they supposed to do, you know? <laughs> it's like, well, there's nothing for you to do. Oh, okay. <laughs> then they wanted to know how you found out, and I think that I think uh, my my mom was just a little miffed that we didn't tell her sooner, since we had known for a couple of years. But she understood the the reason why, because my mother was a nurse, and and I think she had seen patients dying, and that was we just didn't want to put her through all of that because it was just a rare thing in that moment. Because we weren't, in, you know, we didn't live in New York; we were actually in Pennsylvania. It wasn't as many cases, but they were huge newspaper articles. You know, and a lot of people would know or be connected to someone because Pennsylvania, where we were at, uh, outside of Pittsburgh, was still a small town in, in a sense. So if you saw someone's picture in the paper, it was like everybody knew. Altogether, you've gotten some very, very good responses to telling people about your HIV status. 
What's the best response that you've ever gotten? The one that, that probably surprised me the most was uh, one of my older aunts, because a portion of our family uh, was still living in Puerto Rico, and she was the last person living there. When she, she came back to Pennsylvania around 99, and then she knew that I was HIV, whether we were either HIV positive or living with AIDS, so she was told. It was stunning to me that at that time she was 87 years old or 85, and she actually understood that we were talking about a disease. She didn't put any qualifiers on it. <laughs> and, and she seemed to have more information about the disease than I did because she actually had done some community service in one of the hospitals in the in San Juan area. So she was well-versed at, at HIV and AIDS, more well-versed than me and my brother, I think. And I was surprised. And to this day, she's probably a little bit more well-versed than I am. What about the worst response you ever got? I, I, I think the, the, the uh, worst response was no response. That was just from, from some different cousins that I had grown up with. It's like, oh, okay. And then, you know, the, the relationship has never, ever been the same. Very rarely do we speak. You know, in the last 15 years, we just haven't really spoken. How have your relationships with other family and friends changed at all since you were diagnosed? Well, those three cousins of mine that we just haven't spoke with. But outside of that, they really haven't changed with, with anybody I think because we, we brought our family, and when I say family, I mean immediate family, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, and great nieces and nephews, uh, through the whole HIV and AIDS arena. So they're all fairly well educated on, on all of the issues of HIV and AIDS. And, and they actually, I think each one of them, work in some way as a volunteer doing something around HIV and AIDS in the different locations around the country where they live through church networks and other organizations that they work with. You know, they just sort of help to raise their own awareness. So it sounds like you come from a very big family and a very supportive family. And you also said that you grew up in rural Pennsylvania? Yes. So small town kind of a thing? Uh, yeah, semi-small town. You know, we're, we're still an hour from Pittsburgh, so we're close to enough to a big town, but everything that's an hour from Pittsburgh becomes a small town. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit more about your background? All together are seven brothers. Together, no seven sisters. brothers, no sisters. Our family heritage is, is African, Spanish, Native American, or First Nation, and Dutch. Culturally, uh, you know, I would say most of us would probably consider ourselves African American. Because of uh, our, our Spanish roots, we came up through the Caribbean, through Trinidad to Puerto Rico in that sense. We actually had a family farm in Puerto Rico up until 1991 when my aunt finally came up here because she was the last person there. What about relationships? Are you partnered? Are you in a relationship now? Well, <laughs> I've had, let me see, I've had a couple relationships in my, in my 50 years on this planet. <laughs> but um, I, I, I'm actually in my current relationship is a is same gender loving relationship. And how long have you been with your current partner? Ten years. But we've known each other for 20-some years, but we've been together as a couple for ten years. From Pennsylvania, I moved to Chicago before I moved to New York. We all worked for the same company. <laughs> so they brought 
um, me and a couple other people from Pennsylvania, a couple people from Wisconsin and Ohio together, and they they put us basically all in the same place. And we all got to meet each other and know each other working together. And then from that group house, I just moved to uh, New York because I didn't care to working for the company that we'd all started with together. Sounds like you're open with your family. They know that you're in a same-sex oh, relationship. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine living any other way. <laughs> well, I've been open about my sexuality since I was five years old. <laughs> you know, I think I just come from a family where, where, where we where we consider ourselves sexual creatures. You're a human being. You're sexual. And then how that manifests itself is, is going to be different for everybody. My younger brother, who who is now he's now since passed away though, he was bisexual. I guess that's the word you're supposed to use. <laughs> and then all my other brothers are heterosexual. When did your brother pass away? Three years ago. I don't like to guess at you know why some of us are surviving and why some of us are not, and, and why he's not. I, I just don't know. You know, but his body just gave out. You know, the drugs stopped working for him at a certain point, and that's just. That's the way that is. Different people react to different things in very different ways, even if they're close. Yeah, and, you know, even if you're in the same family. And, and it, I've talked about that with other people who have had have siblings that were HIV positive, that, that we're still alive and they're not. And, and it's not that they did anything much different than we did, so we just don't know the answer to that. And how has your family been? How have they handled your brother's passing and knowing that you also have HIV? The last decade's been a, been a little rougher because, you know, both of our parents are both gone now. And then my, our, our brother was the last person in our immediate family that passed away. And I think that because we're a fairly close group of, of people, and we know, that, we know that death is inevitable for all of us, I think our faith just sort of lets that be what it's supposed to be. And we just know, we just go on from there. Would you consider yourself a religious or spiritual person? I would consider myself a person of faith. <laughs> and the religion I belong to allows me to come to it as my full self. So <laughs> I belong to a religious denomination called United Church of Christ. I can be there a member exactly as who I am. No, don't tell business going on in that religion <laughs> or that denomination. But the religion itself is Christianity. I do follow the teachings of uh, Jesus Christ. But then I also like the teachings of Buddha and Muhammad and some other people, too. A little bit of everything, but, but you know, my ultimate would, would probably be Jesus Christ for myself. And it sounds like your section of the denomination is really open to people with HIV and people of a variety of different identities. I think that it's probably like a lot of society, some people struggle with it. Some people are not struggling with it, but there's a medium in there, you know, and, it's a, and this is a fairly safe space. So we do have a whole HIV AIDS ministry at Riverside Church, New York City. So what do you think is the greatest challenge, HIV-wise, that African-American communities are facing? I, I think that, that stigma is still, a, is still a major factor. I, I think that miseducation about the disease is still a factor. I think those are the two bigger factors. And, on the, well, I'd say the third factor is, you know, we do know that there is a real way to prevent HIV for yourself as an individual, and I don't think we teach that well enough. 
What do you think, in your opinion, is the source of that stigma or the source of that miseducation in the African American community specifically? Uh, well, well, I, you know, I think because our African American community is a smaller uh, construct of the larger community of the United States, and unfortunately, we still live in a country that has no strategy for HIV and AIDS. Although we seem to export strategy to other countries, we don't seem to have one of our own. So, so there's a. <laughs> There's a whole bit. To me, there's a whole disconnect for us as, a, as an entire community, and, and that only gets magnified when you start to go into smaller minority groups. And then I think that that you know, and then, you know, in a lot of minority groups, um, but I'll, I'll stick with African American because I work there a little bit more. But you know, we still have some other issues of poverty that impact our ability to do good uh, prevention education. I don't like to use the word racism because uh, I think it's, I don't know if I think we're all one race, but there is such a thing as colorism, and I think that sometimes opportunities for medications may be a little non forthcoming to certain groups, you know, African American groups. They may not have the access to them as we do um, maybe in, in the larger groups, or as easy access, I should say. Sticking with talking about African-American communities, can you talk a little bit to me about your experience being a bisexual or non-heterosexual person, a man, in the African-American community? Yeah, I can. And it's really just terminology, but, but sometimes, you know, as we're all finding out, words are quite important. <laughs> there was a, a collective group for a while. We were, we were known as homosexuals, if we can use that word. Somewhere along the line became a, a concept or a word called gay, which encompassed a whole lot, you know, it encompassed men who sleep with men to a certain extent. But gay turns seem to have its own culture. And even now, you know, um, sometimes, you know, someone will ask me, well, are you gay? And I kind of think to myself, well, I, I use a different terminology. I say, well, I'm in a same gender loving relationship. You know, and so I'm a man who sleeps with a man with men. Although that doesn't mean in ten years, if my partner were to pass away, I might find a new partner, and she might be a female. So I don't know how I would uh, how that fits into the to the word gay. So that's that's one of those things where there's not another word for it. And and I think that what happens in in a lot of African American cultures is there's an impression of what gay is. And it may not be the exact same thing as what it is lived out day to day. There are some people who, in, in African-American cultures of faith that I talk to who are heterosexual, and their whole concept of what gay was was what they would see in, in a parade that was televised on television. And then they kind of thought that there were no black people who were gay. There's the procreation piece. you know, And there are people who truly believe that, well, if you can't procreate, then there must be something wrong with it. Now, you mentioned the procreation piece, and that goes back to what people say about the Bible and homosexuality or non-heterosexuality, being an abomination and things, all of that's rigmarole. But do you face any of this in your church? Oh, of course you do. If you're in a church, of course you do. There, there are Christians on every side of the interpretation of the Bible. And the reason I said if you're in a church, because that, that to, to me, denotes that you're talking about using the Bible as, as your guidepost. And there are many on different sides of 
the interpretation of the entire book. For me, you know, coming up through faith, I was brought up in the Quaker way. And, and the Quaker way was really to use the book as a guidebook, but you were to actually really have some conversations about what did certain things mean, because what it meant to me, what I'm reading, would not necessarily be the same thing as the person next to me. But in a lot of other Christian settings, that's not the way the that book has been introduced to people. So therefore, people come up with all kinds of different types of interpretations that are true to them and authentic to them. Everyone's entitled to their interpretation, whatever that is. But at the end of all of it, this is still Christian Christianity for me. There are three things that we're really asked to do three articles that we're asked to do as Christians, and basically they're just loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your creation, and doing you know doing unto others as you have them do unto you. And, and I just don't want to go into the whole litany, but those are the three things that, that, that our leader basically has said that we're to do. And, and I always say, well, if those three things are being done, then the rest of it doesn't really matter. And, and I apply that to, to HIV and AIDS because there's the whole piece of, you know, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and, and doing good works for folks. So if you're not involved in, in care at that level, the rest of it for me doesn't matter. You, know, you can fight all day about what you believe the interpretations are. And, and that's kind of how I look at it. So now going back to relationships specifically, specifically your relationship with your partner, is your partner positive also? Uh, no, negative. So there's a name for that kind of relationship. I can't remember what it's called. Magnetic, <laughs> magnetic couple, one positive. Co- Discorded or something. Yes. <laughs> there's some guy. I know someone. So now, how has your sex life changed since you found out you were positive? Uh, well, it hasn't. He, oh, he knew that going in. I mean, you know, but but you know, we know how to uh, protect ourselves, and 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 I guess you know it's been working for for decades. So you know, we've been doing the, the agreed upon prevention methods if we're having sexual intercourse. Going back a little bit to, to before you were with your current partner, how did having HIV affect your relationships around that time? I, I will say that for me, for that whole period of, of time in between, I wasn't as active. Probably more or less, you know, anybody that I was dating, number one, they needed to know before we were having sex anyway. It was just a cardinal rule. It was funny because I that. It, it sort of gave me that group of individuals who, once you told them, they were like, oh, well, I don't know if I could do that. So it also let me know that they really weren't the person for me anyway. How do you decide whether to disclose your HIV status to whether it's someone that you're just meeting or to, in the past, a potential partner? That's actually always, it's always a good question. What I do is I decide if it's necessary. Because my, my first line of defense is we're all people living with HIV and AIDS. Everybody is, because we live on the planet, so we're always living with HIV and AIDS somewhere around us. You know, the only real question is, are you infected or affected? And, and I usually leave the conversation there. I don't disclose that much unless it's really going to be helpful for that person to know. Everyone always asks me, oh, you seem to work so much in HIV and AIDS. Are you living with HIV and AIDS? And I just say, we all are. <laughs> And then I just give them that whole answer. And then if they really need to know, and, and you know, you'll know in that moment if someone needs to know. You founded an organization. What were you doing 
before you were diagnosed? I know that you were pretty young, but what sort of work did you do? <coughs> well, actually, uh, that's what it brought me to New York. I worked in the, in the banking industry. You know, it just did administrative kind of work. And I actually did that up until I, I went, into, went into my own self-imposed retirement in 1996. <laughs> I had applied for Social Security, and then that was in the days when people were saying, oh, you better apply before they, before they say no. So I, I did, and they, they actually said yes right away. So I was like, well, okay, this will work <laughs> for a little while. And this was all the time when I actually had gotten ill, too. So it gave me some time to reflect on what, what, what did I want to do next. And I, I realized that I could probably maybe go back to work full-time if I wanted to do that. And, and, and I really had a conversation with myself and thought, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to do that. It's not that I just want to sit and watch television all day or, or you know, go and take, you know, trips places and things like that. So my, my next level was what could I do? And the thing that really came to me was just being of service to other people living with HIV and AIDS and or the people that are advocates for them. Or is there something in that area that I can do? And, and that's how I founded the group that we started. Conscious Contact of New York, it actually came about um, because we saw some gaps in service around 1998 because I wasn't working full-time. It gave me the ability to uh, work with uh, both the city and state departments of health in their prevention planning uh, groups. Some of the things that I saw as a gap in service weren't intentional. It was just that government's can only do so much stuff and they can't do advocacy. And then advocacy groups can do so much stuff but they can't do some other things. It's all about communication. There was a need to actually be able to share upcoming HIV AIDS educational events across the state. That's what we did. We got assembled a few people and we started just posting, you know, like an HIV AIDS event that'll happen in your area here or this area there. And that's what we uh, did and continue to do. So now, what has doing that work taught you? It taught me that there is still a lot of secrecy around HIV and AIDS in certain areas of the state. You know, once you leave New York City, and I'm going to say once you leave Manhattan, <laughs> for the most part, you have certain areas where, you know, HIV AIDS is still very, very quiet. And then once you get out of the five boroughs, uh, Yonkers and beyond, or Long Island and beyond, it's still extremely quiet in, in, in the more suburban areas. And every time that there's an event, you know, they're, they're finding, they get a lot of people that will turn out that want to hear more about it, but it's not like on the daily news every day. The way that we designed ourselves is um, so that we really wouldn't have to have a lot of salaries involved. We decided we would do, we'd be more bridge builders between communities and existing organizations. It's just been interesting how we we work with youth through Planned Parenthood, and we're finding that HIV and AIDS and other STDs just are still on the back burner for most communities in New York State. We've all, as you say, been living with HIV and AIDS for almost 30 years now. Why do you think there is still this silence and secrecy and quietness around HIV? Well, Here's my cynical side. It's a billion-dollar industry that does not want to be shut down. So, therefore, if you don't teach people how to eradicate the disease, then you always have the disease, so people will still have jobs, organizations will still exist, and there really is money to be made. Research will, will still go on. 
and and I, I liken it to polio. You know, at the height of polio, you kind of had what you have now with research and this and that. But once we found the cure, do you see polio offices open anymore? The whole infrastructure is gone. And so when you look at it in dollars and cents, it's a billion-dollar business worldwide, multi-billion-dollar business, I could say. If you really had a cure, and not getting infected is a piece of the cure, but if you really had a cure, you put that all together for the next generation, all the businesses that are related to HIV and AIDS would be gone. That's very cynical, but it's, it's one reason. How do you explain then the silence sort of on the community level and the fact that there's not as much of that silence in cities, in the five boroughs and things like that? What do you think is the source of that? I think because in, in cities and five boroughs you have a little bit of more autonomy speaking around HIV and AIDS, but when you're in a small town area, the moment that you talk about it, then it's you whose face is on, on the newspaper, in the newspaper in that area, or, or whatever, you know, and there's still all of the stigma that's attached to it. And it's not just from individuals, but it's from institutions. And I think another piece as to why it's quiet. It has been 30 years, and some people just want to move on to other issues. What do you think are the biggest issues that need fixing in HIV today? It comes from all different areas, but I do think that at the, at the core of all of it is the real education about how the disease is prevented and, and really implementing the education. I think until we do that, we'll, we'll, we'll still go around in circles about it all the time. I, I, I think that, that, that we really have to, and sometimes I don't even want to say the word educate anymore. I want to say implement the education that's already out there. Use the tools that already exist. Yeah, because I'll give you an instance. One of the denominations that I work with, because I work with actual denominations um, outside of my own, one of the denominations I work with, they're having their youth summer camp, which draws around 7,000 youth to this camp. And this is an evangelical denomination. They called us in to help them because this is the first year that they're going to actually have as workshops for these youth, and, and when I say youth, I'm talking 13 to 18. They're going to have uh, workshops on sexuality, education, and prevention. So that's why they called us in to, to help them create that. Condom use is one preventative method for those who are engaging in sex. And, and abstinence is another preventative method, and there's, there's all these different methods. They actually just took a vote to let us do the sexuality education and to do the prevention method about condoms, but their figure fear was they didn't want to promote sex, or they didn't want the families of these youth that are coming to think they were promoting sex, so they decided that we could give all the promotion materials and we needed to come up with a package that basically had little slips in it that said, if you were getting this this package in a workshop at your church, the condom would be in it. But at this summer camp, we we just have this slip for you. It's always that compromise, well, should you give them all the, all the information or pieces of the information? Um, and so some of the kids that are on the planning committee are livid because 
they didn't not that they were planning on having sex, but they really wanted to have the 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 actual condoms so that they could do live demonstrations and the, you know and so people would know kids would know their peers would know what this really is and they they basically are now saying you adults always don't give us all the information that's why we get in trouble so it's always a two sided uh, thing and for me the issue is because I really do HIV prevention under that comprehensive sexuality education piece. You know, condoms is a very big piece for us. But I could go with this because at least I said we're getting half the job done. So I say to myself, so when it comes to sexuality education, I'm not necessarily teaching you how to have sex. That's, that's, you know, I think there's some things you should be able to be surprised and learn on your own. But, <laughs> but I think you should have all the tools so that you have a point of reference. And you'll also know what's good for you and what's not good for you and, and all these other things. And, and when it comes to HIV-AIDS education on the sexuality piece underneath that, I think you should have been able to see all the preventative tools, especially women with female condoms, uh, should be able to see all the preventative tools so that you know what they are so that when you choose to engage, you also already know how to protect yourself and it's not an issue. I think it's more detrimental for me as an adult, you know, or even as a human being, not to give you all the information so you can make your best choice. When I don't do that, I feel like I've let you down. You're living with HIV. You have been for, what, 22 years now, and you also work in an HIV organization that you founded. Do you ever just want to say, no HIV today? Do you ever get sick of talking about HIV and thinking about HIV and sort of living oh, with HIV Oh, I take HIV all the day. <laughs> I, you know, and, and it's funny, it's, I, I think it's just a part of me. It's always there. It's never not there. But I, I do have fun and, and do other things. And, and every once in a while I get, I'm fortunate enough to be able to go on a trip or a vacation where I'm not really talking about HIV and AIDS and I'm not expected to, although it'll come up because somebody somewhere will ask me, what do I do? And then I'd say, well, I, I work in disease prevention. <laughs> and they'll ask me, what does that mean? And then I have to tell them. For me, it's it's not so much of a work part. It's more of a human part. So it's just a part of some of the things that I do. It's just as if somebody asked me about faith. You know, I'm not reluctant to talk to them about what I think. You know, so it's, it's just a piece of me. If I didn't have some other things to talk about, it would become rough. I'm like everybody else. I like to talk about the price of gas <laughs> and how I can't afford to do certain things anymore. <laughs> and... <laughs> There are other things that I do talk about, so it's not always HIV. Could you compare how you feel about having HIV now to your feelings when you first learned that you were HIV positive? Well, I, you know, I, I can still say I wish I didn't have it. You know, then that's that's still true. You know, and as I get older, I wish I didn't have it. But because I do, and you know, and I've come to learn to live with it, it's just one of those things that, I, you know, I have to monitor. And just be honest with myself and take care of myself to the best of my ability with it, you know. And I, but I do view it as a disease, and I and I think maybe that's been the bigger thing for me. I've never viewed it as anything but a disease. For now, it seems not as fearful and and a little bit more manageable in the moment. And you know, I don't know what tomorrow will bring with it, but you know, right now today is is manageable. How do you think having HIV has changed you? I think it's actually made me more aware of, of medical issues that other people have. 
that are non-HIV related. You know, like I, I did have a niece who, who's had some difficulties in her chest area where she's had to have major surgery on both, both of her breasts. Um, you know, and I, I think I, I probably was a little bit more compassionate when she was going through that at the age of 20 than I might have been had I not been had gone through living with HIV. And as a man, I think that's, <laughs> that's always a little different for us. <laughs> it sounds a little sexist, but I do believe women are just a little bit more nurturing than we are. <laughs> just a tad bit. <laughs> In addition to taking your meds, do you do anything else to keep healthy? Do you sort of stick to a special... Diet, and exercise. this is where my doctor probably would like me to work at a little bit more. I probably should exercise a little bit more. I always like to say it, I'm about 20 pounds overweight. I should probably be at around 200, and I, I sort of stay around 215. <laughs> so, so I could probably a little exercise a little bit more. I actually really haven't changed my eating habits because whatever I've been doing um, for all these years, my cholesterol, is everything seems to be fine in, in those areas. So I don't know if it's, you know, I, I guess I eat enough fruit and vegetables and drink enough water, and but I don't really have a plan of action for it. It's just something that I've always continually just done the same way. Do you know your CD4 count now and your viral load yes, now? Yes, yes. CD4 count is 505. And last visit, and viral load is undetectable. What advice would you give someone who just found out that they're HIV positive? To understand that it's not the end of the world. Confer with specialists who sort of know a little bit about about the disease. Figure out what's best for them, but be willing to do it in collaboration with doctors. And if they're finding that they don't like the doctor that they're working with, find another one right away. I think those would be the things that I would say to start to work with. With that, we've got to bring this interview to a close. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Oliver. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com.